Acts chapter 17. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah was to suffer and to rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a number of prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. And the second reading is 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting at verse 1, and this one is bookmarked in your Bibles. Paul, Silas and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you, and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Thanks, uh, Heather, for that. Readings, those readings. Friends, I just want to ask you before we start, kick off into the passage. Um, does anyone ever get songs stuck in their head? <laughs> Everyone by the sound of it. Um, I often get our Sunday kids' songs stuck in my head. Remember this one? 
Thank you, God, for the animals and trees, for the rivers and the oceans and the sun. Uh, it's a great song, isn't it? It's a, it's a fantastic song. Some songs that you get stuck in your head um, aren't too helpful. In fact, they drive me mad after a while. I think, why is this song, of any song? Um, but this is a good song to stick in our head because it expresses uh, the many things uh, that we are thankful for uh, to God. So why not sing it, right? Uh, and I wonder if, if you were to write your own verse for that song, if you were to do your own version, uh, what things would you include in your Thank You God song? Uh, mine might be, could be, something like this or include something like this. Thank you God for eucalyptus trees, for flurio sunsets, for wine and cheese. And thank you God for coffee! Um, so on. Uh, what about you? Uh, what are you thankful for? Uh, because it is important to say thanks, isn't it? It's an important thing, it's a natural thing to do, to say thank you to the giver uh, of a gift or a kindness uh, that we've received. And it's a universally accepted practice, right? Uh, I would imagine widely encouraged in most, if not all, uh, cultures of the world and at all levels of society. And it's without doubt a good and, and right and healthy thing for us and for our society. Uh, in fact, over the past few decades, psychologists have identified the, these many positive benefits of thankfulness, and they uh, promote a practice of developing what they call an attitude of gratitude. Uh, one simple method they suggest is to begin each day uh, writing down three things or maybe five things that you're thankful for. Uh, and maybe you've heard of it, maybe you've tried this, uh, maybe you're even someone who's made this a regular habit in your life, keeping a, a thanks diary. What a great thing to do. What a great thing to do. And apparently the benefits uh, of this type of pra uh, practice are, are extensive. Uh, one psychology website I looked at had listed 31 uh, proven benefits uh, of having an attitude of gratitude. Uh, if you follow their advice, uh, here's a few things of the, that you can expect. You'll be happier and more content, you'll have improved physical, mental and emotional health, you'll sleep better and even live longer. You'll have higher self-esteem, be more optimistic, energetic and productive. You'll have better success in your career, in sports uh, and other pursuits. Uh, your relationships will improve and you'll make lots of new ones too because people will like you more. Um, now this sounds great, doesn't it? Uh, who wouldn't want those things honestly? And no doubt um, there's so much that is good and helpful and wise about this. But I also wonder if perhaps along with the good uh, there's a problem with all of this. What do you think? Um, I mean when you delve a bit deeper into this practice from a psychology perspective, the primary focus uh, is to increase one's own internal sense of gratitude, whether it's ever expressed in thanks or not, in order to gain uh, these many personal individual um, benefits that this mindset brings. And that's not to mention the um, secular idea of who do I give thanks to God for, for a starry sky and a, and a sunset on the Flurio? Uh, that's another dilemma. But what do you think about this? Um, what do you think? Uh, is our culture's understanding of gratitude and thankfulness, uh, while containing much that's good, a little incomplete and inadequate.
Well, our um, passage today, um, our main passage, uh, the second one, um, is the opening chapter of this letter uh, to the Thessalonians. And I think it has um, much to teach us about thankfulness. Um, Because the thankfulness we read about here uh, in Paul's greeting and thanksgiving, as it's called, uh, can, I think, help to to reshape uh, and to heighten our own thankfulness and to develop a, a, a greater gratitude um, than we often have perhaps, uh, an attitude of gratitude that's shaped by um, the great truths of the gospel, the good news of Jesus uh, and its powerful effect on all who believe it. So let's have a look through it uh, together. Uh, the first verse is the opening greeting and it tells us who wrote the letter and who it's written to. Uh, it's from Paul, Silas and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. And so before we go any further, we need to know uh, a bit about who these people are and we need to know the story behind this letter. It is, after all, uh, an historical letter uh, written to a particular group of people at a particular time for a particular purpose. Uh, And so we need to know the context in order to understand it correctly and what it means for us today as God's word to us. Uh, Now, many of us are familiar with these guys, no doubt, especially the Apostle Paul, uh, but perhaps some of us aren't, Um, and we can all do with a reminder anyway, right? So Paul was a Jew. Uh, He was born a few years after Jesus' birth, uh, but in Tarsus, um, in Cilicia, which is a thousand k's north of Jerusalem. Uh, He was trained in, in Judaism as a Pharisee, So he had a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures and he zealously opposed Christianity. He was a violent persecutor of the early Christian believers. Uh, But God had big plans for Paul and Acts 9 records his radical um, conversion when the risen and glorified Jesus appeared to him uh, in blinding light on the road to Damascus. You might remember and he spoke to him. Um, The encounter not only um, results in him being saved from his sin, but sent as Jesus' uh, apostle to the Gentiles to take the gospel message to the non-Jewish world. And so he he sets about doing that uh, in the coming years. And the rest of Acts, from chapter 9 to the end, is really a record of his missionary journeys, as they're called, where he and his various travelling companions uh, preached the gospel and planted churches Uh, in key cities through the Roman Empire. Uh, Two of these companions of Paul were Silas and Timothy uh, and they joined him on his second uh, and longest missionary journey. Uh, And Paul includes them here with this letter. Um, The letter is primarily from Paul but it's from Paul, Silas and Timothy. As to who these Thessalonians are that it's written to, well We did hear um, the story. A lot of what we know comes from that passage in Acts 17, which is part of this record of Paul's missionary journey. Uh, And there's a map that will come up that might help you just to locate this if you're a map-type person. Uh, So Paul and his companions um, had just come from the city of Philippi, right up the top left under the word Macedonia. You can see Philippi if you've got good eyes up the back. Uh, they'd just come from there, and uh, we, we, um, you may remember last year we went through Philippians. Um, there was some uh, strong opposition to Paul and his message there, including imprisonment, uh, but then God miraculously set them free, 
uh, but they had to head out of there. They had to get out in a hurry. Um, and they headed down through Amphipolis uh, and Apollonia, you can see up there if you can, to Thessalonica, uh, which is the capital city, was the capital city of Macedonia. And so Paul preached um, the gospel to them over at least several weeks, probably a couple of months. And we're told that a large number of Greeks believed, uh, as well as some Jews. And so the church of the Thessalonians was born, a new church plant. Uh, but once again, there was strong opposition there too. And um, after spending just a few weeks in the city, they had to leg it out of there too to avoid uh, the escalating violence against them and these new converts. Uh, so you can imagine just having planted this church, Paul has to leave it without any real established leaders, uh, not yet having been fully taught in the gospel or how to live in their, the pagan culture that they'd come out of and they were left facing this ongoing persecution. Uh, but the story does continue. Paul um, heads from there down to Berea. You can see there, um, he, many believe in Berea. There's a good, a good reception to the gospel. Uh, but people follow him, his op opponents followed him from Thessalon Thessalonica and also stirred up strife, and so he had to go from there too. Um, and he eventually heads down to, um, to Athens. You can imagine by the time he gets to Athens, um, he's really quite concerned for the well-being of this little church that he, he planted, he got started. I mean, are they holding up under this persecution? Or have they given up on their faith altogether, maybe, and gone back to their former way of life? Um, he can't go back himself for some reason, we learn. Uh, so he sends Timothy to go there and to find out how they are and to strengthen them and encourage them with some more solid teaching. We learn about that in chapter 3. Uh, Timothy arrives back uh, with a report and uh, by now Paul's in Corinth. You can see Corinth there too. Um, but the news Timothy brings back uh, brings enormous relief for Paul because um, apart from a few concerns, they're doing really well. They're thriving. And so he writes... A letter to them, this first letter to the Thessalonians, about 51 AD, roughly 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And he seems to write this letter for a few reasons, to encourage them, to urge them on in their faith, to let them know he really wants to visit them again, but as well as addressing some uh, problem issues uh, in areas of sexual morality, idleness, uh, and to correct some misunderstandings they have about the second coming of Jesus. Now that was a little long-winded perhaps but that's a background story uh, that we need to know if we're going to understand this and it's good to keep in mind uh, over these next few weeks uh, as we work our way through it. But back into our text here today. Um, the rest of Paul's greeting in verse 1 is, uh, is strongly shaped by the gospel just like all his uh, letters are uh, and like the thanksgiving that we're going to look at in more detail. Uh, he says, this church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, this gathering is a unique gathering, like here today. It's a gathering of people united in God himself. Uh, God the Father and Jesus his Son. Um, it's a spiritual bond with the triune God. It is unique, it is wonderful. And the fact that Paul can say this of Gentiles... A Jewish Pharisee, former Jewish Pharisee, can say this of them uh, is incredible. 
Uh, of course, it came about through the gospel. Um, and so not surprisingly, Paul ends this opening greeting um, with these little words that we often read over, um, grace and peace to you. Uh, they are powerful words. They're, they're, they are the church in God because of his grace to them, his free gift of forgiveness uh, and eternal life. And so now they have peace with God. Before they were enemies, now they have peace, real objective peace with him forever through faith in Jesus. It's a great reminder for them as they're reading it, and it's a great reminder for us, grace and peace. And now we come to Paul's thanksgiving, which goes really from verse 2 to the end of the chapter. Uh, he says in verse 2, We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. Um, clearly Paul was a praying man, uh, and it seems uh, Silas and Timothy, he, uses, he says, we pray for you, uh, we thank sorry, God for you. Uh, they join him in his prayers, and they obviously prayed often, and every time they did pray, uh, they prayed for the Thessalonian church with great thanks. Their, their prayers were thankful prayers. Uh, we always thank God for all of you. Uh, that is for the whole church, not just a few, all of the church. Uh, as to what it is exactly um, he's thankful for, he goes on to explain uh, and expand through the rest of this chapter. And I just want to highlight seven things, uh, and you'll see them on your outline. If you've got the little leaflet there, there's an outline there. Firstly, gospel fruit uh, in verse 3. Uh, Paul says, We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you might remember these three uh, characteristics, faith, love and hope. Did you recognise them there? If you've been around church for a bit, you'll often know they come, they, they're, they're often mentioned together in the New Testament to describe true Christian character. Uh, they're three inseparably linked um, virtues of Christianity, you could say, uh, so much so that um, some theologians have called them the trinity of Christian value, virtues. Uh, faith, the first one, is the way we receive this gift of God, this salvation by his grace, undeserved and unmerited. It's really like an empty hand that reaches out and desperately receives the gift of salvation, clinging to Jesus in dependent trust. That's faith. And love, uh, well, God's gift to us is based, based on nothing in us, uh, but entirely on his love for us. Uh, an amazing love, a love demonstrated in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And because we've been loved like this, we're able to love others in self-giving ways. So these two uh, characteristics, the first two, faith and love, they're really grounded in the past gospel event, um, Jesus' death and resurrection at his first coming. Uh, but the last of these, hope, of course, hope looks forward. It looks forward with um, absolute certainty to Jesus' return and to full and final salvation and eternal life in a new heavens and earth. Faith, love, hope. But notice um, Paul is, Paul's thankfulness is for the visible outworking of these internal virtues, their work produced by faith, their labour prompted by love, their endurance inspired by hope. Um, and he doesn't elaborate on the details of uh, these things, 
but it certainly would have included um, things like selfless acts of, of service and love and kindness um, to others and visible endurance in the face of this suffering that's going on um, and, the, and yeah, this, um, those opposed to the gospel and this countercultural community that the gospel produces. Uh, and for Paul, of course, he's remembering this from his time with them. He sees it as evidence uh, that their faith is genuine, that the gospel has taken root in their lives. Uh, he remembers this gospel fruit and he wants them to know that he's thankful to God for it. And it's interesting, you know, he, he never uh, thanks them through this whole passage directly. He doesn't say, I thank you. He doesn't thank them. Um, he thanks God because ultimately he knows it's God's fruit. It's the fruit of God's gospel at work in them. And so it's really God's doing. Um, but hearing this would no doubt have encouraged them, right? If you were receiving this letter, you'd be encouraged that Paul is thanking God uh, for this gospel fruit. And you know, the gospel always bears fruit in the lives of those who believe and embrace it. Uh, Christian love, uh, faith, love and hope are always expressed in visible outward ways. And when we, when we today see or hear about it here in our own church family, uh, or in other churches in our community or around the world, when we see this gospel fruit, it really is something to be thankful for, to thank God for. Well, this gospel fruit in the Thessalonian church is evidence of something else, something that Paul brings Paul um, great assurance. And he tells the Thessalonians so that they can be assured too. So point uh, two on your outline. Um, verse four. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Uh, what a great comfort for Paul uh, over here, um, writing to them, to know uh, he, and to convey to his readers that their salvation uh, was the result of God's sovereign choice. We know that he has chosen you. Uh, Jesus said that a, a tree is known by its fruit. You know, you know, an apple, you know that the tree is an apple tree because it has apples and oranges produce Orange trees produce oranges. Um, the gospel fruit, evident in the Thessalonian church, shows that they're part of, of God's tree, of his people, his elect. Uh, and that means that they are totally secure. Their eternal salvation is certain because it is grounded in God's electing love, in his grace. And the fact that Paul, a Jew, again, can call these Gentiles... Look there, brothers and sisters, loved by God. That's no small thing at all, no small thing. Uh, they're part of the same eternal family as him, chosen in Christ, loved by God. Uh, that's wonderful. And Paul is thankful to God for it. And as these Thessalonians heard this read, uh, it would have brought them great assurance too. Uh, the same is true for us, for you, if you are trusting uh, in Jesus as your saviour, uh, you can have this assurance too. Uh, it's a great comfort for you to know that our salvation and the salvation of our brothers and sisters uh, rests in God's uh, sovereign love and choice. Uh, in Article 17 of our own doctrinal statement, the 39 Articles uh, of Religion, describes this doctrine of election as, here's a quote, full of sweet, pleasant and unspeakable comfort to godly persons. Uh, it really is, don't you think? 
Uh, the reason, um, it's the reason Paul writes elsewhere that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Um, how can it be if believers are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, as he writes in Ephesians? So if you're a believer here today, that is something to be very thankful for, for you and for our brothers and sisters here today. Uh, well, Paul goes on to give uh, a reason, another reason why he knows these Thessalonians are chosen by God. Uh, it flows on and it has to do with the coming of the gospel to them, point three uh, on your outline and up on verse four up on the screen. We know that he has chosen you, he writes, because, verse five, our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. Um, the gospel is, in a way, just like any other news, in that it comes to its hearers as words, doesn't it? Words of, of human language, understandable to humans, provided you speak the language that you're hearing it in. Uh, but the gospel is far more than human communication. Uh, the gospel is God's word, God's powerful, saving word to sinful humans. And when it's faithfully preached, it accomplishes exactly what he intends. And Paul was aware that when he had preached the gospel back to the Thessalonians, it came to them not simply as human words, but as God's saving word with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. Bible commentators vary here on whether this, the deep conviction refers to the preacher's conviction or the hearer's conviction. Um, but both are true anyway, aren't they? Uh, Paul and the others uh, had preached with deep conviction of the truth of the message they brought and the Thessalonians came under deep conviction by the Holy Spirit when they heard it preached. Um, God's word accomplished what he had intended for these chosen Thessalonians. Uh, he accomplished this repentance that we're going to read about soon this forgiveness and salvation to eternal life, already evidenced by the gospel fruit in their lives. There's nothing greater in this world, there's nothing greater happening in this world than God's saving work through his word, his gospel, as people are plucked from death to life, from darkness to light. And when we hear news of even one person, maybe one person in our community uh, being saved or of masses being in some far-flung country where some great revival is taking place. This is something above all else to be filled with gratitude for, isn't it? Uh, and to thank God for, just as Paul did um, as the gospel came with power to these early believers. The next two points, um, points four and five on the outline, they're closely linked. I mean, they all are. They're all closely linked, but these two, gospel imitation and gospel modelling. Um, Paul firstly reminds the Thessalonians how he himself and, and Timothy and Silas had modelled Christian life and ministry while they were with them. Uh, he says, you know how we lived among you for your sake. Uh, and we'll hear more about this uh, in chapter 2 next week um, at length. 
But it's clear that Paul and his team were intentional about how they lived among the people they preached to. The gospel transforms lives, is what it does, and Paul reminds them um, of his gospel-changed life, which was evident to them by the way he and the others lived when they were with them. It was for their sake, he tells them. Uh, He knows the power of example, and he and the others are modelling the Christian life to them, and they're watching. And so he's very thankful to God um, that because of this gospel, the same gospel that came to Paul is at work in them, they've become imitators. In verse 6, have a look there. Um, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. They become imitators of Paul and Silas and Timothy, but also of the Lord in Jesus himself. Uh, I mean, Jesus' Jesus' suffering was unique, of course, wasn't it? It was ultimate. Um, But just as he told his disciples, uh, all who belong to Jesus will also suffer like Jesus. They share in his sufferings. We share in his sufferings in some way because the gospel message is opposed. It's often strongly opposed, uh, extremely opposed, um, like it was in Paul's day in parts of the world today. Uh, Paul and his, his mission team, they suffered um, terribly bringing the gospel to the Gentile world. Uh, but they did so with, with joy. Um, doesn't mean some warped masochism that finds pleasure in pain, but a deep, settled joy that only the gospel brings. The, the joy that comes from knowing God and being known by God and loved by him in Christ. And he says the Thessalonians, well, they, they've become imitators Uh, by welcoming the gospel under strong opposition with the same deep joy that the Holy Spirit gives and he's thankful for it. He's thankful to God for it. And we should too, uh, friends, when we we see uh, Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ in all parts of the world uh, displaying joy and godly character in the face of persecution, uh, that is something otherworldly. That is something profoundly unique. It is testimony of the power of God through his gospel. Uh, And it's a model for us. It's a model to us. Um, You know, we will no doubt face uh, increasing opposition in our own country. We will. Um, Paul moves on um, in verse 7. Not only have these Thessalonians become imitators... Uh, of joy and suffering, but they themselves have become models to other surrounding uh, believers in surrounding areas. It says, verse 7, And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, the whole region. There's a a chain reaction going on here, isn't there? Uh, Paul, Silas and Timothy brought the gospel message with great joy in the face of suffering, and they modelled this to the Thessalonians, who became imitators by receiving the gospel in the same way. And now they've become models to all the believers in the region. What a, what a powerful message the gospel is. It's God at work through his word in the, in the lives of those who believe it. And Paul is full of gratitude to God for it. Uh, their example, the Thessalonians' example, is being talked about all over the place. Just a few months, remember? 
And so now the gospel is going out from the Thessalonians. Uh, the message and the model of the lives changed by it. Uh, point six and, and verse eight, have a look there. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. The message of, of grace and peace, uh, it always bears gospel fruit when it comes, not simply with words, but with power to God's chosen people. And the gospel was powerfully at work uh, in the lives of these Thessalonians, enabling them to, to suffer for the um, gospel, for the gospel, for their gospel work with joy, and to keep on proclaiming the same message that came to them. The Lord's message rang out from you, uh, Paul says. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Uh, that's fantastic, isn't it? Um, it can't be contained. And persecution by opponents only seems to fuel the spread of God's saving work. And news is coming to Paul from everywhere about the Thessalonians' faith and example uh, and the eager reception that they gave him and his message and his companions. Their lives have been utterly transformed uh, by this gospel and believers everywhere are talking about it and Paul is delighted by it. He's hearing about this and so he concludes his thanksgiving uh, with this wonderful uh, summary of gospel transformed lives uh, from verse 9. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now you can imagine, I can imagine Paul's excitement as he's writing this, can't you? Um, it seems to step up here. Uh, it's what he's devo devoted his life to, taking the gospel to the Gentile world as Jesus' apostle and to see its effects Firsthand, and to hear reports like this coming back to him, it causes his uh, an overwhelming sense of gratitude, uh, and it bursts out in thanks to God. Really, um, the Thessalonians' conversion um, was a radical one. It was a radical one. The, their pluralistic pagan culture was saturated with uh, all various gods uh, and the physical idols that represented them. Um, but the gospel of God's grace in Jesus is radically transforming and it enabled them, it empowered them to turn from their idols, uh, their dead, false, little g-gods to serve the one true living God. And that's no small thing. It's no small thing for any person to turn from the, the, the idols of their own culture uh, to the one true God. Uh, our culture's idols, well, they're um, a lot more subtle, aren't they, uh, than the statues and carved figures of the first century world. Uh, our own false worship that we are born into of money or possessions or family, relationships, sex, uh, comfort and pleasure and ease and so on, uh, this false worship lies at the heart of, of all of our sinful actions, 
uh, mine and yours. And it could only be restored, our false worship, uh, by the grace of God, the power of God through his gospel. We, um, we all worship something. Uh, we are worshippers by nature, is what humans are. But by default, we, we worship uh, the created things that, are, that we turn into idols rather than the God who created them. And for that, we, just like the Thessalonians, we rightly face God's coming wrath. Uh, that is his good and right and settled opposition to evil uh, and to all who reject him and don't believe the gospel. Uh, but the gospel, of course, is, is good news. It's what it means. It's good news that God, out of his amazing love, uh, his grace, he sent his own son from heaven to die in our place, in your place and mine, and to bear the wrath that we deserved on himself, in himself on the cross. And for those who hear and believe and embrace this good news of God's love and, and the salvation that he freely offers, uh, well, we, like the Thessalonians, we, we wait, not in fear, we wait in joyful expectation for the return of Jesus, um, for his son, God's son, in, back in verse 10, whom he raised from the dead. Uh, we wait for him to come again from heaven, this Jesus, our Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Notice Paul inserts us there. All of a sudden he throws in, he, he's so overwhelmed by this gospel and the wonderful hope that we have and the salvation that we've received. Um, great way to finish that. Uh, what a gospel. What a gospel. It's, it's good news for, for sinners like me and sinners like you. Uh, it really is. It's something that uh, makes us burst, really, in thankfulness, doesn't it? To sing all si kinds of songs of praise and thanks when we, when we gather here each week. Uh, as we wait for Jesus to come again, he is coming again. He is coming. Uh, and this theme of waiting for Jesus uh, is the theme that permeates and uh, dominates this letter. Uh, in coming weeks, we'll uh, hear more of this and hear Paul's encouragement and instruction to the Thessalonians and to us on, on how to live lives worthy of this gospel, worthy of our Lord Jesus uh, while we wait for his return. Well, we need to, uh, I need to wrap up. Um, we've clearly seen through the passage there was a, a theme, rather obvious one, this gospel theme uh, that Paul's gratitude, his, his expression to God was strongly shaped by the gospel uh, and its effects as God powerfully worked uh, his miracles of salvation and transformation through this uh, group of people. And of course his work continues today. It's the greatest thing happening in this world um, through the preaching of the gospel as God gathers uh, a people, his chosen people from all nations of the world into his eternal kingdom, his family, for his glory. And uh, friends, while we're, we're not apostles, we're not the Apostle Paul, but we're also not bystanders watching on, are we? We are, we are partners in this great gospel work right here in our community. And uh, I just want to finish uh, with a question, another question, in, and that is just simply in what ways, uh, in what ways is the gospel uh, shaping your thankfulness, your thanksgiving, and us as a church. How does the gospel 
shaping uh, our Thanksgiving. If you were to uh, write a song, a kid's song, thank you God for, what would you, what would you put in it? Uh, something that you could take with you and create, uh, develop an attitude of gratitude uh, that is profoundly um, wonderful and uh, brings God glory for all that he has done in Christ and is doing in the world through his gospel. Well, friends, uh, rather than close in prayer, which I normally would right now, I want to invite you to join me, uh, I think appropriately, in a prayer of thanksgiving, which will come up on the screen. Uh, And it might be good to stand. Stretch your legs. Friends, let's give thanks uh, to God with these words. Join me if you're comfortable doing so. Otherwise, uh, just listen along. Almighty God and merciful Father, We give you humble and hearty thanks for all your goodness and loving kindness to us and to all people. We praise you for creating and sustaining us and for all the blessings of this life, but above all for your amazing love in redeeming the world through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, giving us grace and the hope of glory. Give us such a sense of all your goodness that we may be truly thankful and may praise you not only with our lips but in our lives by serving you in holy and righteous ways. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be all glory and honour now and forever. Amen.